you are aware that today uh, throughout this nation we have celebrated one event of national significance and that is of course at 4 p.m. this afternoon the bicentennial celebration or birthday of the signing of the Constitution. There was uh, another major uh, event in Wilmore this afternoon at 4 o'clock. I was listening to a radio this past Sunday, I think. Maybe it was Saturday of last week, and I kind of got late into the announcement, and the speaker said, the DJ on the station at Lexington said that at 4 o'clock this Thursday, church bells throughout America were to, were to sound, and uh, bells on government buildings throughout the entire nation were to sound. I had no idea that uh, Professor McKinley was nearly that well-known, so I called him up and he said, no, I believe that's for the Constitution. There has been another, yet third event today. Uh, you've often heard it said, and I'm going to disagree with a preposition in this statement, you've often heard it said that behind every good man is a good woman. I would change that to read perhaps in front of every good man is a woman. And uh, most of you, of course, by virtue of my position, know who I am, but uh, you do not know my dear life partner. Uh, Shirley, are you here anywhere? Would you stand if you're here? This is our 22nd anniversary today. So maybe next year the McKinleys and the Hamiltons can celebrate on the same day. Of course, with classroom commitments, and revival meeting commitments, uh, our celebration has been at a minimum, but uh, we decided uh, next week, probably on Monday, to go all out and really have a big bash, uh, go out for a nice dinner. Uh, we've already got our reservations at McDonald's. <laughs> so anyway, I thought you would be interested in knowing uh, who the woman is who has uh, stood with us and stood with me uh, for the last 22 years. I'd like to read to you tonight from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews is certainly not the easiest book in the New Testament on which to get some handles. I still have ringing very, very clearly in my mind the powerful presentation of last spring at Holiness Conference from Brother Bill Urey on holiness in the book of Hebrews. How valuable and how priceless 
and how practical was he sharing with us. Hebrews chapter 10, let me begin reading with verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purged, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. That's a mouthful, I know. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. I'm going to end a complicated passage with verse 17. 
and I'm not really going to take the time to explain the development of the argument here, except in a few minutes from now, in a very, very quick and superficial fashion. The verse on which I am going to be focusing, that it will take me a few minutes to get to it, is the last one that I read for you. Verse 17. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. And the thesis I want to share with you tonight is simply this. God wants not only to forgive your sins, he wants to forget your sins. Some of us can forgive without forgetting. Some of us can forget without forgiving. God says, I want not only to forgive your sins, I want to forget your sins. He wants not only to provide atonement for our sins, but he wants to develop his own case of amnesia when it comes to those sins. But will you let me put that on the back burner for just a minute and come back to it in a few minutes and, and really end with it and climax with it more than, than talk about it really tonight. A few nights ago, and the evening started to blend in my, in my memory by this time, it was the night that I spoke to you on 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I remember that night that I began speaking about this, this particular idea, this line of thought, that before we would confess our sins, we had to be convicted of the fact that we had sins which needed to be confessed. And so before we could talk about confession, first of all, we had to talk about conviction. And at that particular point, I reminded you out of the Gospel of John about the very first thing that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and what the work and what the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be when he would come. What would the paraclete do when he came to be the surrogate of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus himself said, you recall, the very first thing at the top of the list, he said that when he comes, when the Spirit, when the paraclete comes, he will convict you of sin. Let me remind you that I put three or four different synonyms and range of meanings into the word convict. One thing it obviously means is to expose to bring to light. 
Another thing that it certainly means is to charge you with guilt and with responsibility. So among all of his other ministries, one ministry of the Holy Spirit is to produce within my inner being a conviction of sin. Now let me go no further on repetition and take that thought in a different direction tonight. The more I reflect on it, the more the idea takes in my more the idea takes shape in my mind that Satan can never be original. Only God can be original. If only God can be original, that means the best thing his opponent can do is to try and imitate the work of God. What God does for his purposes, Satan does for his purposes. If God calls people to serve him, Satan calls people to serve him. And let me zero in on this one tonight. If the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, now see if you disagree with me or agree with me. If the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, does the unholy spirit ever also convict of sin? But for a totally different purpose? Do you remember the interesting title that John in the book of Revelation gives to the devil? I don't think an exact equivalent to this phrase is found anywhere else in the Bible, at least in my limited memory and the small concordances that I just had a brief chance to check out. But one of the titles, one of the descriptive phrases that John in the Revelation gives to Satan is this. He calls him an accuser. He calls him an accuser of Christians. Or the literal phrase, the accuser of the brethren and the sisters. Now as I think about it, there's not a world of difference between conviction and accusation. And if the Holy Spirit is among us to convict us of sin, it may well be that instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, you may be allowing 
the unholy spirit to convict you of sin for his sake and for his purpose and for his goal. Now let me ask you this question and then try to answer it. What is the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the unholy spirit? A number of things come to my mind. Let me bounce two or three of them off you tonight. One difference is this. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin only in order that he might set you free from it and bring you liberty, a word that's on the lips of many Americans today. Conviction is a means to an end. And that end is release. Repentance. Conversion. A new start. A fresh beginning. He convicts you of sin not because he dislikes you, but because he loves you and desires your best. On the other hand, the unholy spirit will convict you of sin, not so that he might set you free in redemption to Jesus Christ, but he will convict you of sin so that you may get deeper and deeper in bondage to those sins. He will convict you of so many sins that he will be trying to tell you that your case is essentially hopeless. One uses conviction to set you free. The other uses conviction as a way of saying your case is hopeless and irreversible. I have talked to more than one person in the Asbury community who has bought into that damnable lie. My sins are too gross. My transgressions are too rotten to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been convicted by the unholy spirit that their sins represent an insuperable barrier even to God Almighty. Let me tell you of another difference. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, He convicts you of real sin. He doesn't make it up. He doesn't improvise. When he convicts you of sin, he convicts you of real sin. But 
when the unholy spirit convicts you of sin, he might convict you of imaginary sin. He will twist your imagination and your ideas and try to convince you that you've done things which you really have not done. And if he can convict you of a sin and write guilty over your life, but you're innocent, he has succeeded. I wish I had kept a track of how many students I have counseled with either at this altar or downstairs in my study whose lead online is something like this. I think, Prof, that I committed the unpardonable sin. Now certainly the Bible teaches about a sin that is unpardonable. And to be frank with you, I'm not sure I understand all that that means. But if the unholy spirit can get you into the place where you believe that you are under the load of this unpardonable sin, and if God wanted to forgive you, he couldn't forgive you anyway, then you have fallen prey to the subtle, the subtleties of the evil one. Let me mention a third difference. This is the one I think I want to underscore most of all. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he convicts you of unforgiven sin. So that it might be brought to the cross, placed at the feet of Jesus, and experience his redemption. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, he convicts of sin that is unforgiven. On the other hand, often when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, he tries to convict you of sin that God in his grace has already forgiven. He keeps trying to flush up out of our past those things that are already under the blood. And he uses them as a club to batter us and to knock us into submission. Do I speak here tonight to some people who don't hear as clearly the voice of the Spirit of God convicting them of unforgiven sin as much as they hear the voice of the unholy Spirit convicting them of sin that you thought was already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
it's amazing. But one of the chief arsenals in the, in, in the, in the weaponry of the enemy is his ability to use our past to defeat us in our present. He comes to you and he says something like, well, yes, you did confess it. I remember that you did. But you know, you never should have done that. You must feel bad for doing that. And he sows, he begins to sow seeds of mistrust in your imagination about the genuineness of the forgiveness that you have found in Jesus Christ. And any time he can raise a suspicion, a question mark, over the genuineness and the thoroughness of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ of your sins, you become putty in his hands to mold and shape as he would choose. And in light of that, in light of those distinctions, I would like to make three observations on the text that I have shared with you tonight. Obviously, Hebrews 10, 17 has to do with the issue of forgiveness. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Three points about God's forgiveness of our sins. Two very clearly in the text. One in the larger context of the text. Let's begin with that one first. The first thing that I would like to share with you that suggests itself to me out of this passage of Scripture is the ground, the basis of God's forgiveness. On what grounds? On what basis does God forgive our sins? And the answer to that question is to look at the larger context in which our text appears. If you have read Hebrews recently, and it's a difficult book, I grant you that, you will remember, at least through the first 11 chapters of the book, there are a series of contrasts that the author draws. He begins by drawing a contrast between Jesus and the prophets. God once spoke to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. Then he goes on, whoever he is, and we're not even sure who the author of this book is. There are about 14 choices, take your pick. After that, the author draws a second contrast. He draws a contrast between Moses and Jesus, showing how the word that God has spoken through Jesus 
is superior to the word that God has spoken through Moses. Thirdly, and I may have these out of order, he draws a contrast between Jesus and the angels. They are simply sons of God, but he's the son of God. Contrast, contrast, contrast. Jesus against this. Jesus against that. Jesus against that. And the largest contrast that Hebrews makes is not between Jesus and Moses, Jesus and prophets, Jesus and angels, Jesus and Moses. The largest contrast that the writer of Hebrews makes is between Jesus, the priest, and the priests of the Old Testament. One of the things that the priests do is that they have to offer sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews says that one of the differences between those priests and this priest is that those priests have to continually, yearly, repeating, ad nauseum, they have to again and again and again and again offer sacrifices for their people. And therefore there is no real forgiveness of sin if you have to offer sacrifices again and again and again ad nauseum. But this priest, says Hebrews, this priest, this Pontifex Maximus, this priest does not offer sacrifice after sacrifice. He offered but one sacrifice. One sacrifice, not a repeated sacrifice. And it wasn't a sacrifice of bulls and lambs. It was a sacrifice of himself. It was a sacrifice of his blood, not the blood of animals. And therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, because Jesus offered once and for all a perfect sacrifice, there is once and for all a perfect solution to your sins. And what is it? What is it? Hebrews says it is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of heifers and bulls and lambs is useless for the taking away of sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ is tailor-made for the removal of sin. And Hebrews, the context says, that is the basis that is the ground tonight for our forgiveness. The spilled, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that you have going for you tonight. Nothing else. If I were to take you over to that passage in Revelation 12 where Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren, 
It's a phrase that I didn't notice until this afternoon. That doesn't mean I started preparing this afternoon. I know some of you... St- no, better not say that. I'd always notice that little phrase. The accuser of the Christians who stands before God as he stood before God on Job and said, this man is serving you only because... What I never noticed is the next little phrase. Those who are being accused by the accuser from the underworld. John says in the book of Revelation that they overcame his accusations. How did they overcome? Do you remember the phrase? It says, and they overcame his accusations by the blood of the Lamb. If I can recreate that scene imaginatively in my mind, I hear Satan standing before the throne of God or somewhere, and he points his finger of condemnation at me, and he says, God, there is a sinner. There's one who's broken your law. And I interrupt. I interrupt. And I say, I know that's right, Mr. Devil. But I want to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And that's how I overcome his accusations and condemnations of me. They overcame the accusations by the blood of the Lamb. That's the only grounds, that's the only basis for God's forgiveness. The ground of God's forgiveness. Let me just pass very quickly on to number two. For Hebrews 10 to 17 talks to us not only about the grounds of God's forgiveness, but it talks to us about the scope and the extent of God's forgiveness. What does God forgive? When he forgives. And how much does he forgive? Hebrews 10, 17 says, I tonight am willing to forgive your sins and, notice that coordinating conjunction, I am willing tonight to forgive your sins and your iniquities. Now, I don't believe those are just two synonyms. Do you know what sins are? Whether you look at the Greek verb or whether you look at the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, the verb to sin, interestingly, comes out of the world of archery, bow and arrow. This past week, while I've been engaged in these revival services, I've broken one tradition. I've not been observing my office hours in the afternoon. I go right home and have lunch with Shirley. And then after we have a right quick lunch, what I've been doing is I take our dog, Streak, little Streak, a mutt, has a white streak running down under his chin and between his front paws. And I walk him around the golf course down, what do you call that, Death Valley that goes down where the cross-country team runs. I walk right around the extremities of the golf course, 
as fast as I can. And I work up a good sweat and get some good exercise and streak likes it too. And normally I have the golf course to myself at 12.30 or 1 o'clock on school days. But I know for the last two days when I've been out there, there's been one other person on the golf course. It's been Robbie Neff, Professor Neff's son. And he's there, you know, where there's archery targets are, those bundles of hay with the pieces of paper, the targets on them. And I see Robbie pulling back. And I give Robbie a wide berth. And I tell Street to hurry up. But here's Robbie shooting. And here I'm walking, coming down this way on his left, around behind him, and back up his right. And when I get from that moment, and I walk down behind him, he usually has a chance to shoot about six arrows. And I haven't told Robbie yet, but every time he's done it, he's sinned. He's missed. I mean, he's been close, but he hasn't got right in the middle. That's literally what sin means, to aim, to shoot for the target, but to miss. To sin means to give it your best shot, to try your best, but to miss. God says to you, I can take those misses. I can take those misses. And they can be covered by my blood tonight. But God says, I'm not only going to forgive your sins, I'm going to forgive your iniquities. If sin is failure, iniquities are transgressions. And iniquity is not giving it your best shot and missing it. Iniquity is a deliberate, transgression of the law of God in which you say, I'll do it my way. And the writer of Hebrew says to us tonight, look, there is forgiveness even for the Asbarian tonight in whom there is lodged this kind of a rebellious, transgressing spirit. That's the extent, and that's the scope of God's forgiveness. The basis, the grounds of his forgiveness. Secondly, the scope, the extent of his forgiveness. And finally, number three, the finality of God's forgiveness. And I will remember them no more. That's finality. I like the way Corrie Ten Boom says it in one of her writings. She says, when God forgives our sins, she not, He not only forgives our sins, but He buries them in the deepest sea. And after He buries them in the deepest sea, here's the part, I like, after he buries them in the deepest sea, he puts a sign up which says, no fishing allowed. 
forgotten. Not to be dredged up again, to use as evidence to indict you and to incriminate you and to defeat you. One of the earlier saints of God in this generation was a man by the name of S.D. Gordon. You know Gordon College and Gordon Conwell Seminary in Boston, or north of Boston? They're named after Gordon. I think it's S.D., isn't it, sir? It's close. It's Gordon, anyway. Produced a lot of books like Quiet Talks on Prayer and Quiet Talks on This. And in one of those books, they read almost like journals or diaries. He says, one night during his prayer time, he says, I was reminding God of what a terrible sinner I had been. And I was reminding God of all the evil and the filthy things that I had done. He said, what I was doing is I was rewinding my past and filling God in on the facts. And he said, while I'm praying, reminding God of how evil I had been, God checked me, stopped me, and said to me, Gordon, Gordon, I distinctly remember forgiving those. Why do you dwell on them? Why do you fix them up? If I have not only forgiven them, but forgotten them. In conclusion tonight, I'd like to share with you a little letter that I got. This letter has sat in my drawer for eight years. Maybe nine, but at least eight. I've never shared it with anybody. One of the reasons I've never shared it before is I wanted to make sure the person who wrote it to me was long gone from Asbury College, and she is. I want to share portions with, of her letter with you tonight as we conclude. Now, be, now, before I read portions of the letter, I've got to tell you two things for background that will help you understand. Number one, A number of years ago, we had a very dynamic Southern Baptist pastor preach in this pulpit. I think during these services, many of you know him. I suspect some of you are from his church. I refer to Peter Lord. I remember he made a statement that sort of shot through me when he made it. I can even remember after he said it, this is eight, nine, ten years ago, he turned around and stared at President Kinlaw, who had a grin on his face from ear to ear. Let me give you the gist of that. That night, Peter Lord was speaking on 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You remember that verse, don't you? If any man be in Christ, he is a brand new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Underline some words there. If any man be in Christ, he's new. Triple underline it. All things have passed away. All things. 
underline it again with three lines. All things have become new. In other words, when Christ saves us, he doesn't just patch us up. He doesn't just apply some band-aids. He makes us brand new. Brand new. How new? Brand new. And this is the part I remember from Peter Lord. He was quoting somebody, and I cannot remember who he was quoting. He pointed his finger at us and he said, How new does Christ make a person when he saves him or her? And this is the kind of very graphic quote that he used. He said, I'll tell you how pure a person is made when they are touched and redeemed by Jesus Christ. This is the illustration. He said, when a harlot, when a harlot gives her life over to Jesus Christ, and she is made completely new, God makes her purer than a virgin. He makes her, and here's the word I never heard before, he makes her an art virgin. You know what happens when you put the prefix A-R-C-H on front of a word? You know what a bishop is. And you know what an archbishop is. And every school that you played football against in high school on Friday night was a rival. But you had at least one high school that was probably your arch rival. Would you keep in the back of your mind that word, arch virgin? Background piece of information number two. A month or two after that, I was speaking in chapel from this very same flat. Well, where else would I be speaking from? You know, I wasn't from the gym or the golf course. And I told the story about two men from Paris, France, France, for the purists, who were working for a firm that obtained a contract on the other side of the English Channel to go and work in London. And so these two guys from Paris packed their bags, left Paris, went across the Channel, and took up residence in London until they finished their job, which was a rather lengthy job. One of the two couldn't wait till it was over. He wanted to get back to home. Once a freshman, a freshman, once a Frenchman, always a Frenchman. Excuse me, I did not mean that for you. <laughs> Would help if I could talk. But the other fellow, London grew on him. It grew on him. It grew on him so much that when the job was completed and it was time to go back home, he decided not to. On the contrary, he decided to take up 
permanent residence in London, in England. And after a while, he decided not just to take up permanent residence, but to take out citizenship. And the day came when he was sworn in, and he was now a citizen of England. His French friend, who had to get back to Paris, speaking to him for what might be the last time, said to him, Well, you're no longer French. You're English now. How are you different? Because you're no longer French. But English. And the guy thought for a while. And he said, Well, to be honest with you, I really don't know. I said, well, are you talking any differently? I said, no. Does your food taste any different? No. Well, is there any difference between yesterday when you were French and today when you're English? And the guy thought for a while. And then a light bulb went off. And he said, yes, there's at least one difference. Yesterday, Waterloo was a defeat. And today, it's a victory. That's one difference. Will you take that story about Waterloo and that art version as I share with you just a bit of this story. Last year about this time, I was stupidly dating a guy that expected more from me than I wanted to give. She's not yet at Asbury. It was the first time that I had ever really worried about losing somebody. This time, I really wanted to keep him. And he knew it. So I lost my virginity that day. After that, I became a Christian. And while I was sure that Christ had forgiven me, Satan kept pounding into my mind that I had done something for which there could be no forgiveness. Then three things happened. Number one, for the first time in my life, I under understood what 2 Corinthians 5.17 meant. When Christ makes you, he makes you brand new in spite of what you've done in your past. He said, then I heard Peter Lord make that reference in class, in chapel, to being an arch virgin. And then I remember that story you told about the two guys from Paris. And it meant more to me than anybody else in Hugh's auditorium. 
because I had referred to that fateful night as my Waterloo. It was in my diary. There was my Waterloo where I met defeat. But she said, isn't it true, Prof, that when you're on the right side, Waterloo is a victory and not a defeat? Here's the best part of the letter. Here's how she signed it. Archie! Archie! They knew, forgiven and forgotten. You can find that tonight. Let's pray. Oh God, bring multitudes to you tonight who are under the condemnation of the evil one. Set them free, Lord, tonight. And we'll give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 430. Number 240. You will recognize it. We ask you to come quickly if God is speaking to you tonight. And find that forgiveness and that forgetfulness that God says I can bring into your life. Let's stand and sing it. The altar is open. Numbers of you need to come tonight and find that forgiveness and assurance in Christ.